Welcome to the Liberty Equality Data Podcast, a podcast series aiming to foster discussions about the value that individuals can get from their data. We invite industry leaders and pioneers to talk about the most recent developments in different industries, the opportunities with the user-held data, and an open data market. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Liberty Equality Data Podcast Series. I'm Marcus, I'll be your host for today with the episode with Dr. Jan Altasar, who is a health and machine learning data expert. His background includes Princeton, as well as Google's DeepMind, and now running a open source data advocacy nonprofit called OneFact. With Jan, we talk about the importance of open data, the importance of open machine learning models and open source, how in the health and wellness data market representation matters, why Google voice to text does not work in Estonian. And we talk about how this representation in the context of health and wellness is a question of life and death. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Thank you, John, so much for joining me today on this this podcast. I'm excited to have you on board and chat with you. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Marcus. Right, so why, why don't we just talk a little bit more, kind of just starting off and setting the scene. You're working on so many fascinating initiatives uh, that have to do with health data. So why don't you just kind of give us a little bit more of a context in terms of what brought you to working on health data in general, and what are some of the challenges that you see that you want to devote more time and energy on? Actually, I'm thinking of answering this question in a confusing way, because I think the challenge that I'm working on is figuring out what problems I cannot see. I think I came to this conclusion from a nice quote that I heard uh, Jennifer Rittner say a few weeks ago. She's a professor uh, in New York and teaches classes on ethnography and health justice. And what she said is that in life, we are tasked with uh, rectifying the injustices born on our parents and on our grandparents. And those injustices are route on our DNA at an epigenetic level, as one example, or at a cultural level through the actions of our parents or our grandparents. And through such injustices, then we have this epigenetic, cultural, social, collective memory within each of our families of what happened to our ancestors Mm. over time. Like say, if you're African-American, you might be at a higher risk for certain diseases like sickle cell or uh, I guess polycystic ovarian syndrome. And say for me, then my Estonian family, we have generations of sleep apnea. We have small noses, those obstruct our airways and lead to hypopneas when we sleep. And so some of these memories uh, affect our actions and affect our abilities to see certain things of what's in our vocabulary, especially when it comes to injustice. And to answer your question a little more directly, I think it's because I have the privilege of having this experience of growing up as a child of a immigrant from Estonia who was fleeing the war. My dad was born in Sweden and my mom uh, married my dad in 1991 and moved to Canada. So I'm the child of two immigrants, both Estonians. One had, one grew up in the USSR. Uh, one grew up mostly in Canada, but also experienced immigration. And so I've seen their lives having that experience contrast so starkly with my experience as like a tall white male walking in a room and then sounding very American and being treated as such by my doctors, by lawyers, by most people in most countries in the, in, in the world. 
then that, that leads to a lot of cognitive dissonance. And I think it's my task to resolve that cognitive dissonance if we are tasked with uh, resolving the injustices born on our parents and our grandparents. And so mm. that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And open source software or data justice and equality, health equity just happen to be some narrative devices that we can use to better target our actions to better resolve the cognitive dissonances we all experience between like how mm. we're treated versus how someone else is treated or even like like i spent i put i think twelve thousand dollars on my credit card over the weekend to get apple products because mine all broke and these apple products for a company that i pay twelve thousand dollars to don't let me talk to my mom so i have chronic pain and i still speak to my mom in estonian and it's very very hard for me <laughs> to write and I can't use the speech to text because there's not enough training data in Estonian and there never will be. And Apple is not incentivized to solve this problem because it's not a big enough market. Mm. Or even for some languages in Africa, like say there's 8 million speakers, I think in Ethiopia, one of the dialects there, and there's been petitions to Apple, to Google, but there's still no good speech to text. So I think these kinds of things are easier for me to see than say somebody who may not have grown up the way I did, like as a third culture kid with that level of cognitive dissonance or that level of code switching demanded from them by mm. the environments they were in. But I think that's that's been my journey so far. No, I, I, I love that. Thank you. Thank you for going through that. There's so many different things that we can kind of go into. But I think one thing that that's also um, relevant to kind of frame is that I've gone through some of the things that that you've some of the talks that you've held for example in looking at health data and then how certain type of populations and demographics are represented in the outcomes of that health data and i think you know from from your point of view uh, like you mentioned a million estonians i'm finnish originally i'm actually also born in in sweden um so there's five million Finns and and so on and so forth but on the face of it then you and i are anyway very privileged we are white males who the world oftentimes very very directly favors and lifts up now of course there's nuances that stereotypes only go so far but let's kind of talk a little bit more practically about the the data that you've worked on so far like you mentioned open source and we'll get to that in a bit give us some examples of how does this representation actually manifest itself? That what, like how dire are these differences in how people are treated and how that actually, you know, shows up in the data? Uh, I think it's uh, life and death. Like these are the stakes. So again, thinking of narrative devices of how should we choose which devices to employ to change the world in the ways that we want to. Health is a nice area to work in because it is life, life or death. Like say my work in maternal health or severe maternal morbidity or understanding why C-section rates are higher in some populations, some areas than others. That is a life and death decision because a C-section is an elective surgery. It pays the bills for the hospital and also has severe consequences for some uh, mothers in a way that's dependent on race, dependent on ethnicity, dependent on insurance status language spoken place of origin so that's why i like working in maternal health because it is a life and death decision or if you think of another area in healthcare like intensive care units then an algorithm that might do the enterprise resource planning for a hospital system will need to 
rank patient identifiers or patient IDs like name, birthday, whatever, and prioritize patients in the intensive care unit for open heart surgery or brain surgery. And how that prioritization happens is so complicated. Do we do it based on insurance status? Do we do it based on need? Well, how do you determine need? Do you look at somebody and if they're bleeding out, put them first? But doctors don't have enough time to look at everybody with their eyes. So somewhere an algorithm needs to come into the picture and say, hey, in this ERP software, we're going to prioritize people in this way. Or we're going to assign uh, international classification of diseases codes in this way in order to better bill insurance so we can increase our revenue and provide better care for our patients. So I think all across the board, it's really important to look at the fundamental units of analysis, whether those are the ICD codes or whether those are the algorithms used in the ERP software or whether those are the natural language processing tools to prioritize patients depending on their probability of readmission within mm -hmm. a 30-day window, kind of like the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That's one of the quality, quality measures they look at for hospitals. So I think there's many ways to go about selecting the consequences to be so dire that people can't help but want to do it or want to change it if you can best illustrate to them how dire the consequences are. So that's been a kind of other narrative journey I've been on of kind of doing the ethnography or qualitative research to understand the area and then try to help frame it in such a way that the consequences are as dire as possible. So let's talk a little bit about the, the data itself, because you mentioned this point about, um, let's call it broadly awareness, that if, unless we're aware that there are issues and unless we're aware of underlying things and you know how could we possibly expect some action um, from there. Mm -hmm. I know that that you worked with data for a long time um, with I mean both your your work at Princeton, but also then at these companies in the past, for example, the date mine and so on and so forth. In order for us to get to that type of um, application layer, if you will, where we can actually utilize the data, we have to make sure that the data itself, from a system point of view, is actually flowing, that we actually have access to it. I, I guess I like answering things in koans. So once again, I like I like doing kind of gonzo ethnography of like a mixture of gonzo journalism and then ethnographic field work where I can understand my own first person experience mm -hmm. and create a story from just going out and asking like, how easy is it for me to get the results of my MRI? Or, oh, I can join the NIH-funded All of Us research study. Joinallofus.org is the address. I need my whole genome sequenced. How easy is it for me to access the results of my whole genome sequencing? And that's a very effective avenue to understand mm -hmm. a complex web of incentives. I think the benefit of kind of doing things yourself is that you, you can build up like an intricate mental model of where things work, where things break down, your pain points, the pain points of however many customer service reps you interact with uh, throughout like your patient journey. And that's been the most informative. And then after that, I think working at a large academic medical center, at a bioinformatics department, with a variety of departments at a hospital, and with a variety of CMIOs, I think that has been harder to understand like personally, mm -hmm. because it's like, I still don't know what the data use agreements are between the hospital that employs me and say a health information exchange like Health Verity. 
or like a health HIEs or a $50 billion industry that contract with hospitals uh, that buy data and then resell it to life sciences companies that after the data has been statistically de-identified, say uh, using some kind of algorithm that like doesn't use personally identifiable information, like we'll maybe use a subset of race and ethnicities, use a part of the zip code, and then there's some guarantee to the life sciences company that this is patient data, you can do research and development with it, but you cannot identify somebody with it. So mm. the benefit to the life sciences company is that they get data to select populations for clinical trials, evaluate drugs. The benefit to the hospital is that it makes money off of this data that it generates from patients and patient visits. And I think working at a hospital has let me understand that system a little bit better, but it's again only through first-person interviews and more of this ethnographic fieldwork approach or gonzo journalistic approach of just going out and talking to people rather than trying to look at the data that we have internally because internally it's a mess of different guidelines like FHIR or GDL7. I don't understand most of these acronyms. There's the SNOMED ontology. There's so many different ways of harmonizing data, working with it, de-identifying data. Nobody agrees on which de-identification algorithm we should use. Companies make billions of dollars off of their patented statistical de-identification algorithm. So there's a lot of incentives preventing um, preventing anyone from understanding the entire system. And the incentives currently are to obfuscate as much as possible. Obfuscating, um, I guess, like international classification of diseases codes or progress notes because if they get audited by the Office of the Inspector General, by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, they might get a fine if the progress notes for a patient do not reflect that patient's uh, international classification of diseases codes for billing purposes. Like if I'm listed as having type one and type two diabetes, which is physiologically impossible, it might still be in my record. And then the hospital will get money from the both of those streams of income from both of those icd codes and so if they get audited by cms then they might get a fine doesn't happen that often if they do they only audit a tiny percentage of notes so that's an example of one of the incentives for obfuscating data mm -hmm. and it's not anyone's fault it's just the system as it currently stands like once yeah. again if we nobody goes into medicine or healthcare to try to make things worse and med school is hard Every doctor I know works their ass off and really cares about patients. But somewhere in the system, things have been set up in such a way that there's this emergent property that seems like really evil and nobody can quite know how to ascribe blame. Hmm. And that's, I think, the trickiest aspect about it of both doing the first person research and seeing like, well, everyone I talk to is super nice when I ask for my own healthcare data. And sure, it might take 20 phone calls to get the DVD of my MRI. It might take like two trips to the library to scan that DVD, find the right software, because who has a DVD player these days? And that's kind of in contrast to like at the health system level, it's really, really hard to know who is making these decisions or who sets up the incentives. It's more an emergent property of the system. So that's something that I need all the help I can get with figuring out. So if you have any ideas. I'm very curious. And I, I like this approach that you're you're taking of essentially observing and, and not assigning blame 
because at the end of the day, you know, we are where we are. Um, and then essentially if we can make it better, which is, as you say, something that, that, you know, nobody aims to make it worse. That being said, it is complicated. So let's go a little bit deeper into this first person narrative, because that's a lot of what we're also doing that, that, you know, I've played around with all sorts of different types of data sets that I personally have access to. I've requested them. And like you said, most of the time, companies may be slightly slow in providing it. The, the format may be clunky. The format may be, you know, um, <laughs> worse than clunky. But I've, I've never really had a lot of issues. Sometimes there are situations where I will tell a company that, you know, I have this account, I have this data, I would like a copy of it. And the company will say that you don't or that we, we do not have that data on you, where I know for a fact that, that they do. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, after a couple of phone calls, a couple of email exchanges, then somebody will realize that, okay, this guy isn't going away, and then they'll hand it over. That's kind of why I called the nonprofit organization, like the One Fact Foundation. Sure. Because what you just said illustrates that cognitive dissonance that I was talking about earlier of like, you, Marcos, know that, you can access a piece of data about your health on a website and the person you're speaking to is saying, there's no way we can give you that data. And you're saying, but I can see it on the screen. Why can't I have it? It's mine. There's a law that says that if I request healthcare data, I must be given that. And so that that's kind of the point I was trying to make earlier, which you illustrate beautifully of the cognitive dissonance that's created. And the more you can create these experiences of cognitive dissonance, then the more you can help yourself and help others see where the system gives or doesn't give or how, where there might be like points of leverage with which to change it. Hmm. But it is very system driven that, that a lot of times the individual experience and the individual participant is very much left outside of these. Like you mentioned this, this web of different types of third party relationships around patient data, of course, anonymized and kind of, you know, at an arm's length. But still, it feels like the individual, outside of the point of care, they're very much um, separate from these, these kind of webs of data overall. And one of the things that I wonder, and I think it was also raised in one of the talks that you gave, was that how we view the individual. So for example, there is this almost what I view as paternalistic way of looking at the individual that you know, they can't handle this data. And my personal view is that that's very unfortunate because at the end of the day, um, it's not black and white. Like, yes, you need to have the data be presented in the right way. And yes, you need to make sure that it's presented in um, what's it called responsible way and in a responsible method and so on and so forth. But that being said, I've never really bought this gatekeeper approach that let's keep no, the data denigrating. away because yeah. it's denigrating. It also feels like it's, it's the wrong way to go. Whereas if you do have the data actually flow, then there are so many different things that you can see, but that you can take action with. For yourself, uh, for your own physiological health, I, I find this theme around bottom-up um, empowerment especially for that systems way as a very, very interesting opportunity that I hasn't, to be honest, really been explored that much yet. I completely agree. And I, I, I'm very curious about the scientific or any scientific basis for it. Like one way I think about this personally at a personal level is in terms of locus of control. Like where is the control that I feel I might have over the world? Where is that location? Is it in my brain? Is it 
in my heart? Is it in my body? I don't know. But I know that if I experience depression, then I might not want to leave my house because everything feels like I look at a tree and I feel like it has control over my negative thinking. Mm. Or like if you think of learned helplessness or one way to characterize depression, a depressed person is to see whether they feel helpless and hopeless uh, about most things or many things in their life of consequence. And I remember some experiments that were done in, I think, dogs, where they electrocute dogs or something. And then once the shock stops, the dog has learned or has been, the behavior has been reinforced that the dog stays in that area in which they do not receive the shock. And the dog has learned to be helpless because mm. even though it's not getting shocked anymore, it stays in that corner, much like a human within a system in which they cannot experience the agency that they might be able to have in some alternative future where they can access all their healthcare data. People trust them to make the best decisions for their own behavior change journey. People give them the agency and the ability to make those decisions and provide some guidance along the way, as you say, to do so respectfully, ethically, responsibly, in a socially conscious way. I think that's a, that's a very good point that you're making of the system is set up to almost be mistrustful of the person most impacted by the decisions of the system itself. And that creates cognitive dissonance in me. And I'm curious about how we resolve it. But it is also an area where um, at the end of the day, then, you know, not, not everybody is a data geek like me, that not everybody wants to go in. But there's and, no know, alternative, Marcos. We need to work from first principles and look at the medical school graduation rates worldwide. We can look at low and middle income countries and whether they'll ever have, say, more than 20 ophthalmologists in Ghana or however many ventilators they they might have in some other low middle income countries during peak COVID waves. I think there's no option but to give people a little bit more choice safely and responsibly as well as we can, but it's a global user experience research problem where hmm. we know for a fact we will never have enough therapists or psychiatrists or doctors or nurses. Like take India as an example. There's the accredited social health activist, community health workers body, it's about a million ASHA community health aides. They might go door to door in villages in Maharashtra, take people's vitals. Those people may not have Android devices, may have low health literacy. And that workforce of 1 million community health workers, not nurses, not doctors, is responsible for the health of over a billion people. So we need to give those billion people a little bit more control over the system. And if we export the kind of incentive-driven, profit-driven uh, system of healthcare that we have in the United States, like with Epic, making the electronic health record software, or with insurance companies, like determining how hospitals uh, develop their pricing strategy. It will not work in low-middle-income countries, and it will not work in a country as large as India with only one million community health workers. So mm. I think there is a large tension there between how things are in America driven by venture capital and corporations and what things might be possible in the futures we can imagine for other countries that where we already know there aren't enough doctors. So the only solution that I know of is to do build some technology, do some research. But how that technology gets built is very, very important where we may not want, say, Google or Facebook or whoever is doing like giving free internet in India to generate more revenue 
we may not want those same incentives to determine the decisions we make about our health. And it comes down to, I think, a couple of different things. Like, uh, I'm, I'm personally a very, very big proponent for individual creativity, that you have developers and you have individuals that, given the opportunity and given the, the chance, they will build something meaningful. And yes, they may not always get it right, and there may be thousands of permutations of something. But for example, like you said, that if there is a dire need, and then people are given the tools, in this case, data, as well as technology, then I mean, won't they have the interest to essentially figure it out themselves? And then in some cases, some people will actually succeed. That's something that I have to, I think they, they have, have to, to. exactly. Many, many developing countries. It seems to be the, the I, I hesitate to say the only way, but it seems to be the natural way to solve some of these problems. But then you also mentioned around um, how we architect these new solutions. And I think that's a really, really important point. And it's also something of what I consider a choice because the interest and the incentive systems that we have, for example, in the US, they are, again, in a non-judgmental way, they are what they are. But that being said, it is a very, very unique opportunity that if we can start not just emerging this data that we have as a foundation, but if we can actually start emerging these tools as like a layer on top. And this is where I see a huge opportunity from different types of open source resources, libraries of how to take this data into a usable format. So I'm not just talking about like visualizations and trends and step counters, but actually into something that, you know, can be built into a hundred different things. Like for example, take sleep data, then somebody can create different types of prepackaged libraries for how you can normalize um, sleep data, but then also that others can take and then they can use that for example, in different types of use cases, like for example, recovery, athletics, um, sleep apnea, for example, um, different types of things like that. Um, what are your thoughts around like, how do we talk about kind of th this layer on top? The good news here is that I know it works and I'm excited to see it work at a global scale. And I know it works because of my past experiences, like say interning at Google or at DeepMind where it's built on an open source stack. Like the Linux foundation is responsible to some degree for how Ubuntu, the operating system that all Google employees use to write their software. And most internet websites that you visit uh, will run some parts of their uh, backend on using open source software. And mm. most words that you speak into Alexa or Google Home or the things that help me reduce my chronic pain and avoid typing those are built on open source software. So in this case, like Google and Facebook might be competing for developer mindshare with their open source AI products like TensorFlow or PyTorch. And Google search is built on open source, like Clinical Bert, a project I worked on during my PhD of like took uh, the bi-directional encoder representations from Transformers paper from Google that powers a lot of Google search and now many different functions within Google. We trained this model a little bit extra on uh, data that was more relevant to hospital systems. Mm. And we saw that it improved performance and it did so in a way that was in concordance with expert human clinician judgment. And so I already know this, this, this solution works, but again, the really hard part is how do we collectively uh, abdicate as much responsibility as possible? Because the moment somebody's responsible, then they're 
fight or flight system kicks in. They're scared about liability. They're like, what if the system that Jan built kills someone? Then I get really scared. I'm like, I don't want to be responsible for the AI model I built to determine like open heart surgery candidates and rank them. I, I don't have that ex expertise. So I think the moment there's too much responsibility on any one individual or entity, then you have like fears of liability, at least in America. I don't know about other other places, but things like that kick your threat response into a high gear. So I think it's our collective responsibility to reduce each other's threat response, not assign blame, and just be curious about how systems are set up. Because again, we have cognitive dissonance of like, wait, we have Siri and Alexa and all these awesome tools, but they don't work in Estonian. I don't know about Finnish, but many other languages that people need to use them in, they don't work and they're open source. So why can't I take this code and use it? Oh, I don't have the electricity uh, like resources to power a large city, so I cannot train these models and I don't have the data because there's not uh, enough data for these low resource languages. So through by just like being curious about our cognitive dissonance in the context of open source tools and asking like what works really, 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 really well for corporations and why hasn't this been done in whichever area you care about, health being one example, then we can slowly start to see and like work backwards and back out the incentive structures at play that prevent these solutions that we know to be very effective in other contexts from working in healthcare. As, as again, as one, one example, this is like a very general problem of like say self-driving cars, like in Estonia, then it's so small that you can literally canvas people and do kind of ethnographic qualitative research and ask people of like, okay, like Jan's grandma is crossing the road. She moves slowly and the Tesla's like going towards her. How should the algorithm decide between the driver's life and my grandmother's life? And then they just ask people and then they're using this to bootstrap the creation of laws and legislation around, well, do we hold somebody who built the algorithm responsible? Well, what if Jan built the algorithm and it's his grandmother? What if he prioritizes his grandmother over the driver who paid a lot of money for this car? It's so complicated. So again, I abdicate responsibility and I trust the actual people, which like you said, I like the bottom up aspect of this, which is trust the actual people who have like skin in the game, whose, whose behavior, whose actions, whose decisions are most affected, whose lives are affected by the algorithms. Why don't you trust them to make the decision that's best for them around how these tools get built? And maybe Estonians want speech to text to work. I don't know. I haven't, I'm, I don't talk in Estonian that much. I'm slowly losing my language, but that's how I think about these problems of like, talk to the actual people, see what they think, and then do the messy process of collective decision-making, which I don't know how that works, but that's the little thread of hope that I have of how to solve this problem, given that we know it's so, so, so effective in many other domains. So there's a couple of things that you mentioned that are um, fantastic to just kind of highlight that there is this broader trend uh, where essentially decentralization is, you know, if we extrapolate a little bit, it's basically replacing uh, institutions. So we take, for example, um, what's going on in crypto and DeFi, and then the premise is that, you know, why can't everybody be their own institution? Why can't everybody be there? Why can't there be like this shared decentralized institution, which is powered by, you know, the quote unquote, the people, the, the community, and those that, like you said, have skin in the game. I think there are a lot of, um, lot of people 
and a lot of communities that have this thesis that the future institutions, they are not going to be centrally governed and centrally, you know, liable even, uh, but they are going to essentially go through a, a long-term process of decentralization. It's a very interesting thing as we're talking about decision-making algorithms, um, that those decision-making algorithms, they have different roles to play. Some of those uh, decision-making algorithms, they will make decisions for me um, based on my data, and they could even be, be owned by me. And that's essentially, let's say, a, a, an easier um, way of understanding it, the, the decision process, where essentially it's just contained to me. But then when you go into these uh, large systems that are intertwined and they have to make decisions in a messy world, it's a very, very fascinating point of, can we actually decentralize that um, ownership and responsibility for how that entire system ends up being governed? And that's a very big question, but I would say it's one that we're testing right now in the market. And it's one that we're inevitably going to end up with um, different types of models, both centralized, which we already have, as well as in decentralized. Right. I think the the nice thing here is that we already have a choice. Like we're not starting from scratch here, and there's mm -hmm. so much precedent for the internet being built on open source, open source communities. Like um, whoever governs governs like protocols are, is interesting. Uh, there's an interesting way they run meetings where like to seek concordance on a big decision, then they hum. And so humming, it's hard to trace. And so the way the internet has been built is with a loose collective or at least certain protocols that are important for the internet uh, get built is through humming at in-person meetings where you can't really tell who's humming, who's not. But if the hum is loud enough and people collectively agree that we can hear the humming, it seems like there's like uh, people are in accord then we already have a lot of precedent for decentralized decision-making and the internet being a very functional ecosystem, sure, with like significant consequences if you look at, I don't know, large corporations' actions in Myanmar or elsewhere. Then uh, I think, I think it, is, it is hopeful to some degree. And also I want to hedge and put on like the motivational interviewing hat and say like we need to help people choose after people are fully informed of the risks and benefits of their actions the mm. cost and benefit of like giving my data to this one company or this one corporation or donating my data to research to life sciences research or giving my patient record to a startup that helps me solve my family's rare disease problem and then continues to do machine learning research on my child's genetic data or my family's data i think these are really really messy issues and I think people uh, need to be given the choice. Like it's again, like I trust somebody to know and understand a complex system well enough to tell me like, yes, I understand the risks or no, I don't. Please keep talking to me until I understand and then I'll be able to choose. I think people deserve to be given that choice. And that's what I'm excited to build the tools in order to support those people in making those choices. There was one other thing that, that you, you mentioned, which um, we can use this as a, as a concluding thought, um, because I think this notion of what's worked really well for the enterprise, I think it's a very, very powerful thought. And enterprises, they, they do have a lot of really, really sophisticated and brilliant, to be honest, technological engineering for many things that have to do with data. 
The interesting thing that we oftentimes think about kind of with my colleagues and our, our community overall is what if we take some of those things that enterprises have for how they harness, they clean, they utilize, make decisions on data. What if we could turn them around and essentially give the same tools uh, to one single person? Uh, at a time, yeah. of course, then by proxy, then millions and millions and millions. So that ends up in different permutations like, you know, yes, uh, there are situations where in the future I will too have to go to a doctor and I will have to share certain information with that doctor and then it will, I will have to have a qualified clinician give me recommendations. But there are many situations where I could have my own AI doctor. I could have essentially different types of data that that you know, tracks my behavior, for example, how much weight I place on each foot, for example, what my stride length is, my tilt of my foot, and so on and so forth. And if I essentially have these types of data sets, as well as different applications that run on top of them, that, for example, compare my current behavior against my baseline, we can probably start catching quite a lot of things at the individual. Like, for example, let's say that I bought a new set of shoes and then suddenly my weight distribution between my feet is different three weeks after when, you know, maybe the shoes typically get broken in in a week or two. But in week three, if I'm still tilting, then I mean, it wouldn't be a huge thing for uh, an algorithm to say that, hey, Marcus, by the way, have you noticed that you're straining your right leg a lot more than your left leg? And then it could give me a recommendation that, you know, we know that you bought shoes three weeks ago, or I know that you bought th shoes three weeks ago, that maybe those weren't the right shoes for you. And this would all be incredibly invasive if this was, you know, somebody else watching out for your own data. But if, what if it's you in the future? And this is kind of one of those choices that I think we're also very excited about, that if we can actually take some of this... Um, decision-making and some of this onus and really empower individuals. And like you said, give them that, that choice that they can themselves choose to use this or not. I mean, not everybody has to, but they should be able to have this choice. But I do think that there's a lot of that really, really sophisticated enterprise technology that just never really made it to the individual level before. And maybe it's a time and a place thing. Maybe it hasn't really been um, economically or technologically feasible to distribute something like that. But with the decentralized systems, it feels like that's an opportunity that we're given, that we can essentially take some of those proven technologies and we can empower individuals on an individual by individual basis to essentially make use of those. And that can hopefully then address some of these things that we talked about at the beginning around disproportionate outcomes for different types of um, subsets of people that mm -hmm. might not have access to the system overall. I think it's possible only in very narrow slices of society or life or bodies or psychology. I think, yes, the enterprise approach works of like build open source AI, use it to control developer mindshare, hire people, create a good hiring pipeline, build world-class products like Google search or Alexa or Facebook. But I also, I like the attitude of irreverence of questioning, like, do we even need this in the first place? And so that's why I push back a little bit of like, yes, we know the enterprise approach works of like open source software for everyone, good AI. Uh, and I think we need to be really, really careful in not letting the uh, frontier mindset that I so love about America get the best of us. I, I love that point about irreverence and really kind of just questioning 
that you know being being aware and questioning that you know what are things that we're taking for granted what are things that that we're in the dark of and what are things that where we like what are, what are the roles of technology that we accept at different stages um but like you said it's also very very i mean there are a lot of people there are a lot of contexts there are a lot of situations so that's why i that's call right. it one fact because it's like all you need to start from it's like okay like I'm curious about higher variability. Let me understand it. From that one fact, I now understand that, okay, maybe this intervention for chronic pain or anxiety or depression might have a chance at scaling and helping us fix this problem where we don't have enough clinicians anywhere in the world. Right. So we'll keep watching your work on, on onefact.org as well as just staying, staying in touch overall. But thank you, Jan, so much for being on and just chatting with us, there's a lot of things to be hopeful for, and there's also a lot of things to keep questioning. So thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you for joining this episode of the Liberty Equality Data Podcast, sponsored by Profina. At Profina, we're building a personal data cloud for individuals and developer tools to build apps that run on top of users' data. You can find more information about us on the web at profina.com. What topics should we tackle? Who would you like to hear on this podcast? If you have any suggestions, or if you're interested in learning more, please join our open Slack channel, Liberty Equality Data. Until next time.